Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of a law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Hello and welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman and today I'm sitting with Ken Estridge, who I've known for quite a while and I respect and admire and I'm delighted to have him here with me to talk about a variety of topics including communication, his fabulous career, a book called Inspired Accountability, and he's the author of that book, and relationships and the uh, interrelationship of all of these topics. So welcome, Ken. Thank you so much, Hindel. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Ken is a very highly educated and very kind and uh, happy and joyful person. His uh, undergraduate degree is from MIT, Bachelor in Science. He then He's such a slouch, went to MIT Sloan School for an MBA, and then went to Harvard, and he has a doctorate in business administration. So based on those credentials alone, you're a highly qualified uh, person for our podcast today. Well, I feel like an expert on business. Whether I'm an expert on life remains to be seen. All right. Well, an audience will, will let us know that, I hope. So we've had a lot of interesting conversations, you and, you and me, over, over time since we've known each other socially. So I want to talk about a little bit about how communication and your book and relationships overlap, but I want to talk first about about your business and how that informs your life and your life experiences and in, ultimately how it informed you as an author of a book about communication. Well, I work with leaders in companies of all sizes. One half of my practice is executive coaching in very large companies like Verizon or GE or State Street Bank. I've worked in over 25 Fortune 500 companies doing leadership coaching. And all of that work is helping them be effective in their interpersonal relationships with other people. A lot of it has to do with influence skills, how they get things done through people over whom they have no authority, such as their peers or their boss or the extended organization. And I've worked with very high, very smart, high-achieving people who just want to play their best game. They want to be as good as they can be. And oftentimes, they're very left-brained. They're very analytical. They're, they came up through finance or through technology. And all of a sudden, they find themselves managing people in a complex organization. With no experience to do that. Right. And I, I would say that at the cornerstone of all this is communication. And what I shared with you earlier is I think a lot of the issues I see at work, I also see in people's personal lives. And that's kind of a, a good segue to the subject of, of people who are thinking about or are going through divorce or renegotiation of their relationships. Would you give us a little background on your personal life to give some context to the audience? Yes, I, I'm very experienced in the field of divorce. <laughs> and marriage. <laughs> and marriage. So I'm currently in my third marriage. And I've been with my current wife for 28 years this May. This one stuck. So I'm very excited. <laughs> this one stuck. But my first two marriages were not quite so successful. My first marriage only lasted one year. We actually dated and lived together for three years before we got married. And it was interesting how things changed fundamentally the minute we got married. And my second marriage lasted seven years, but they had very different dynamics to them. And I think I learned a lot from them that I can share. So in my first marriage, there was a big age gap and also kind of a career gap between myself and my wife. Uh, at the time I got married, I was 34 and my wife was 27. The whole time we had dated, she had been a graduate student at, at Harvard. She went to Radcliffe or Harvard undergraduate. Then she went to Kennedy School and got her master's degree. So the entire time we were dating, she was a student. And I was a businessman running a business that had become quite successful very quickly. And I think a year after we started living together, I bought a house in Weston. 
with a swimming pool and stables for horses and conservation land around us. And I thought I had made it, and she was busy going to school every day. And I had all the money, so I bought the house, and I, I bought a car for her and basically paid for all the bills and was waiting for her to finally emerge from this so we could have a family together. We got married just about the time she finished her master's degree. And I realized the conversation we never had was one about timing, because here I was 34 thinking about children, and she was 27 thinking about work. And she had been a student for a long time. She was very excited about her first job. She went from having hair down to her waist and being a rather bohemian dancer to being a, a very serious professional. She cut her hair short. She got this government consulting job with a big consulting firm. And the next thing I knew, she was working 65 hours a week. And she wasn't home for dinner. And she wasn't thinking about children. We were just out of sync. We were completely out of sync. And we never really had that conversation of when do you want to have a family and what are your goals? And um, her father and mother had been in business together. They had both been psychologists. And her father went on to become very famous and published books that were translated into seven different languages. And her mother became a housewife. And her mother always resented her father for having taken the limelight and had all the success while she stayed home and raised a family. Yeah, it reminds me of a recent film called The Wife. Right, yeah. so exactly. And so here she was making, she wanted to make sure she didn't walk in her mother's footsteps. And she didn't want to be overshadowed by me because I was here, I was seven years older and I was running a successful business. Well, and, she's well-educated. Um, she wanted to she use was that very education. Well, she wanted to use her education and I don't begrudge her that. And by the way, we're friends today. But as marriage partners, we were out of sync. And it was really interesting to see that we never had that conversation. I mean, the whole time we were together, we were just enjoying each other and having fun. And we traveled around the world together and we had wonderful vacations. And, and when we got involved in the planning of our wedding, it was a spectacular wedding. And we spent, you know, a whole year planning this incredible wedding, which by the way, we sold our house in Weston, bought one in Lincoln, and we held the wedding on the lawn of our home in Lincoln. And we had this beautiful contemporary house overlooking a pond in Lincoln. And I was on top of the world, and she was thinking, it's time to go to work. <laughs> you know, so it just really didn't work for us. So a year after we were married, we decided we really just didn't want the same things. And we ended up having a handshake divorce, and it was easy, no fault, no stress. Yeah. It's a good thing you decided early. Yeah, I just it was clear that we were out of sync. I was single for a while, and I dated a variety of nice women. It took me three years to find wife number two. And uh, wife number two actually came to work for me. And she was one of many women working for me. And I always had a policy of never dating any of my employees. And I fell in love with her. And I was smitten. So we ended up uh, living together for a year and maybe two years. And then we got married. And she had three sons by her previous marriage. By the time we got married, I was 40. Mm -hmm. So a number of years had transpired. I had gone from being 34 in my first marriage to being 35 when I got divorced to being, I guess, 38 when I met her. Yeah. And by the time we got married, I was 40, and I had kind of gotten used to not having children. Yeah. And I was used to my freedom and used to being able to travel around the world. And I had a business in New York and Boston, and I was happy to be able to go back and forth. And all of a sudden, her three kids came to live with us, which I hadn't expected because they had, after she had gotten divorced, they had lived with her ex-husband. They were living down south in North Carolina, where the culture is very different. And again, a conversation that we never had was what's it like to bring up kids and what do you value and what do you think is important and what's your philosophy of child raising? And I ended up becoming the evil stepfather, you know, who wanted them to go to school and get good grades. And she was the, the mother who said, my children can do no wrong. I'm so happy to have them living with me again. 
So we had this big home, home in Newton, and I was I had a business in New York that I had to spend time in. So we ha- we hired a full time housekeeper to be in the house, so that when we went to New York, there was somebody with the kids, and they would just run wild. I mean, they, when they came to live with us, they were 10, 12, and 15. Mm-hmm. We were together for seven years, so it was all their teenage years. Tough years. And tough years to for be a father, much less to be kids. a stepfather. <laughs> yeah. So again, I think what I learned there is we really didn't have the right conversations. We never sat down and said, okay, let's agree on how we're going to raise these kids. And let's agree on what really matters to the two of us. And it was clear that what mattered to her was having her children at home, regardless of how they behaved and what they did. And what mattered to me was having them live exemplary lives and get a good education. And I was a great believer in education. I kind of introduced them to things they had never been introduced to, like classical music and opera, you know, and serious films as opposed to non-serious films. But again, we were kind of like oil and water in some ways. Yeah. So really the theme of this podcast could be the right conversation. The right conversation. And that's really what my book is all about. You know, my book is called Inspire Accountability Breakthrough Workplace Transformation for 21st Century Leaders in the Age of Millennials, which is a lot of words. And basically what it's saying is a lot of the leaders in business today are having a really hard time with this new generation. You know, the millennials are 21 to 38. They think differently. They grew up with computers and iPhones, and they think they can work from anywhere, anytime. They don't want to come to an office nine to five. They don't want to be told that they have to follow all the rules. They want to be respected. They want to get promotions after six months. <laughs> they, they have a certain kind of entitlement to it's them. It's a new cult business culture. And, and they're, the, they're the children of the boomers and of some of the Gen Xers. And a lot of the managers I work with just don't know how to talk to these people. In my book, I advocate something I call a paradigm shift around accountability. And by the way, accountability is an issue between husbands and wives. It's an issue between parents and children. And it's an issue between employers and employees. And the old conversation, when I went to work, if a boss said jump, you said how high? Mm -hmm. You never questioned authority. Mm -hmm. You know, your job was to get and keep a job. Today, it's very low unemployment. Highly educated people know they can work anywhere. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like they are shackled to a job or a business or a boss. So there's a lot of mobility. Tremendous mobility. They they change jobs. And less loyalty. Much less loyalty. They've learned that most companies are not that loyal to their employees over time. The average millennial changes jobs every two to three years. So it's not like lifetime A lot of training time, too. A lot of training time. I'm working with one very large company now. Well, not very large. It's a $102 million staffing firm. But they lose a third of their employees every year. Every year they're hiring and training people, and they're losing people who they've just invested in training. So it's a hard problem. But, you know, their whole workforce is under the age of 40. But irony, it's a recruiting firm, right? <laughs> that well, they're losing their own staff. Well, they're not. Yeah, they're in the business of placing travel nurses and travel doctors and travel physical therapists. But their workers are virtually all under thirty-five, and the leadership of the company is still young as well. But you know what used to work is not working. It used to be that as long as you gave people incentive systems that paid them a lot for working hard, they would work hard. And now a lot of these employees say, "I want to leave at five o'clock and go have a beer with a friend." or I want to come in late and work from home, or I want to take Fridays off in the summer, and I'll still get my work done. So the first paradigm shift is from command and control, telling people what to do, to a process of inquiry, which I think is good for any relationship, which is assume good intent. Assume that people do what they do for logical reasons to them. If you ever read Freakonomics, he talks about bizarre behaviors that are Strange from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out, they all make sense. Like, why do kids deal drugs in the ghetto? Even though they make very little money 
and it's very dangerous, and sometimes they get, it's very high risk. But guess who all the stars in the ghetto are? It's the guys walking around with the gold chains and the fancy girls and the fancy cars, and they're all the drug dealers. And these kids think, I want to grow up to be just like them. So they take high risks. Why do high school teachers cheat on kids' exams? Because they want their students to look good, so they look good as a teacher. So in Freakonomics, they talk about the fact that behavior, which may seem illogical, is logical from the inside out. So an interesting story, by the way, back on marriage, my current wife, Lee and I, were dating two weeks when she turned to me and she said, hey, we both screwed up our last marriage. Let's get into couples therapy now before we screw this one up. She did it before you got married. Two weeks after dating each other. Yeah, that's We met each other. We liked each other instantly. Neither of us thought we'd get married again. She had been through two divorces. I had been through two divorces. And we met each other at a singles dance and it was kind of love at first sight. Uh And two weeks later, she said, let's start couples counseling now. (laughs) And we did, and it was amazing. I remember the first words the couples counselor said to us is, you can be right or you can be married. (laughs) Because we're both oldest children and we're used to being right and we're both a little headstrong. And we always kid ourselves about that phrase whenever we start arguing. I say, you can be right or you can be married. So fast forward, we have been together a long time and we've gone through a variety of ups and downs, but you know, things are good right now. Well, he's fantastic. And well, wise. Thank you. thank you for As saying you. that. She is wise. It's true. I've learned a lot from her. Like me too. So my notion in this book is if you want to know what's going on with the people you manage, ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I would argue the same thing's true with your spouse. If mm-hmm. you want to know what's going on with your spouse or your children, ask questions. Now, in the book, I have a particular set of questions to ask. And I kind of break it down into what I call seven C's. It started out as four C's once upon a time, and my publisher said, give them seven C's, there'll be more more. to read. (laughs) And the seven C's really are a basis for looking at what might be causing someone to behave in ways that are not what you want. Okay. So You want to tell us what the C's are? I'll tell you what they are, because I think they apply to family as well. So the first C is culture, Uh which is, do you have a culture that makes it safe to challenge authority, that makes it safe to question an order? that makes it safe to say, I can't do it, I won't do it, I don't know how to do it, I'm too busy to do it, there's too much on my plate, what do you want me to drop? Uh If the culture doesn't permit that, and by the way, there are a number of big companies I've coached at where the culture does not permit that, Uh where literally you you never question authority. And if you do, it's considered a no-no. And if your boss says, I need you to stay late tonight, you don't say, I've got a kid's ballet recital, you just stay late. You don't question authority. And again, it depends on your level in the organization. A lot of people I'm working with are senior execs. They're VPs or SVPs. And sometimes the company thinks it owns them. I had one senior exec I was working with at a large high-tech firm. He was responsible for a billion dollars of business. But he had two children under the age of 10. And he had a boss who was a workaholic. And when his daughter, when his eight-year-old daughter had a ballet recital that she wanted him to come to, he wanted to go. And his boss is comment was, I don't care about your children. I don't care about your family. All I care about is our clients. If our client says jump, you jump. Well, he jumped. He left the company, went to a competitor. They lost a very, very good employee because they didn't care about him. So the first question is, is there a culture that permits you to push back and question things and have a real dialogue with your boss about what really matters now and how good is good enough, how fast is fast enough? What can I not do? All of these C's will apply, sounds like, they're going to apply to relationships. So the question is, what kind of culture are you building at home? How are you educating your children? What do you want them to take with them when they leave home? Because most of your investment in your children is the first 10 years. After that, their personalities are pretty well formed. Well, so culture is in a way values. 
It is values, and it, we do. I do a lot of work with companies on corporate values. I, I mentioned I had one company I worked with. We spent six months just trying to figure out what were the core values of this organization. Which is like the culture. It is the culture. It's what, what do we value in the, here. Mm -hmm. And the second C is clarity, which is when you say something, do you assume people get it just because you said it? Mm -hmm. Or do you hold yourself responsible for the hearing of the listener? Mm -hmm. Now, you may have said to your spouse or your children, do this or don't do this, and assume that because you said it, they got it. And sometimes they'll nod yes and not mean yes. Mm -hmm. Particularly in a work setting, oftentimes the boss says, do ABC, and people sit there nodding their heads, and they walk out of the meeting and turn to each other and say, boy, was that a stupid idea? We're never going to get that done. So part of clarity has to do with ensuring that your message really gets through and holding yourself as the boss or as the parent responsible for the hearing of the listener. I can't remember who it was, but someone recently was you know, speaking with me and always said, I want to do this. And the reason is, every time they said something, they explained their reasoning behind it. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that's great. Yeah. So it gives more clarity, obviously, to the statement it does because give there's a justification. Clarity. And also, it's good to ask questions. Like, do you have any questions about what I just asked you to do? You know, sometimes people, uh, uh, frequently bosses will walk in and say, can you get this done today? And then somebody says, okay, I can, I can get it done today if I stop everything else on my plate. Is that okay for you? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. So that's part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Next which, C. Which leads me to the next C. So the next C is capacity, which is are you as a boss aware of what else is on their plate? Now, I've seen in, in the spousal relationship, a lot of times uh, I've had guys tell me they go to the office to avoid the honeydews at home because their wives are always asking them to do something. Yeah. Well, a couple of guys I know who have retired get out of the house every day just so they're not sitting there waiting for their wife to ask them to do something. And um, I think that's why people play I'm so laughing, much golf on the I golf was, course. I was wondering, like, why is that so terrible to do something around the house? Maybe it's right. more than they feel like doing. I understand Maybe it that. is. But the capacity issue really is, do you know what else is on somebody's plate? Yeah. And, for example, if you're a spouse and your husband comes home exhausted having spent 10 hours at the office, whether it's male or female spouse, yeah. are you being sensitive to that? Mm -hmm. Or are you acting like it's no problem and just that you should be here for me right now? And, you know, sometimes they can't be there for you. They just need some downtime. They need to chill out. They need to take a bath or they need to meditate or do something just to change gears. I remember when I was really stressed out at times in my career, I would sit in my car in the, in the, par in the parking garage yeah. and I would just sit there for five minutes and breathe before going into the house oh, because yeah. I just didn't want to bring my stress into the house with you me. You needed a transition. I had that problem yesterday. <laughs> I needed some chill out time. Yeah, and sometimes people don't ask for it. Yeah. And I think a lot of times in relationships, particularly when they go into what I call the red zone, when they're just screaming at each other, mm. you just need to take, take a break and you Separate. need to ask for a timeout. So capacity issues are, do you know what else is on their plate? Are you being respectful of them when you're asking them to do something? And are you helping them manage their capacity by prioritizing things for them? Uh, the next C is competence. Uh -huh. The world is changing so quickly that people are constantly being asked to do things they've never done before. Uh -huh. I know I'm guilty of this all the time. I have a part-time person working for me, and I'm constantly asking her to do things she's never learned how to do, and I say, go figure it out. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fine to go figure it out, but if she makes mistakes, then whose fault is it, mine or hers? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, so the confidence issue is, are you providing adequate training? Yeah. Are you asking people to do things that are consistent with their experience? Or are you just assuming they're going to learn whatever they need to learn on the fly? Yeah. Which brings up my next C, which is, Confidence, uh -huh. because if they haven't got the competence, you can provide training. But if you've provided training and they've never done it before, they may have the competence but not the confidence, and they may feel afraid of making mistakes, yeah. which comes back to a culture, which is, is this a culture where it's okay to make mistakes? Yeah. 
Because there are some cultures where it's not okay to make mistakes and where if, if something's not perfect, people get upset. Mm-hmm. And I coached one executive where if somebody brought him bad news or made a mistake, he would ream them out publicly and mm. embarrass them. So people, it was terrible, it was toxic. I was brought in by the board because this person had two of his senior vice presidents had quit on him. Yeah, he was offending too many He was people. offending everybody. So the confidence issue is, do they get a chance to practice it before they're being judged on performance? Mm -hmm. And do they feel confident of their ability to actually deliver something mm -hmm. at the level it's requested? Yeah. The next one is commitment. Uh-huh. Now, Are we on number seven is, now? I think I've got one more. Okay. That's number six. Number six is commitment. And the commitment one really is, do you care enough about your boss and about your company to do whatever it takes? The reason commitment is kind of a two-sided thing is, does your company care about you and does your boss care about you enough to engage you so that you feel committed to them? Today, 85% of American workers are disengaged. 85% are thinking about where else can they go to work because of issues with their boss, because they don't feel cared about. They don't feel acknowledged. They don't feel appreciated. I coached one man who was a division president for a large high-tech firm, and I asked him what his boss thought of his work, and he said, I don't know. I guess it's okay. I said, why do you guess it's okay? He said, I haven't heard anything in a year and a half. Yes. I went to talk to his boss. I said, how's my guy doing? Yes. He said, he's doing okay. If he screws up, I'll let him know. Yeah. I said, with all due respect, and this guy was responsible for $4 billion in five business units. I said, with all due respect, no news may be good news, but no news is not good leadership. Uh -huh. That's a good expression. I said, you need to let this man know how he's doing and let him know what he needs to work on. And you, if he's doing a great job, give him some acknowledgement. And my rule of thumb for leaders is for every criticism you give, you need to give five praises that are sincere and, and true. Uh -huh. If you have a balance of five to one, and by the way, at home, it should be more like seven to one. <laughs> You know, my <laughs> wife, my wife, who I love dearly, is really good at telling me what I do wrong. Yeah. And every once in a while, she tells me I do something right. And I would really love it if the balance were seven to one in my home. But this, this is a study that's actually been done. Have you practiced the seven to one balance? I have practiced it. In fact, I do an exercise with leaders. I give them 10 dimes. And I say, put 10 dimes in your right pocket. Yeah. And every time you catch somebody doing something right and give them a compliment, you move one dime from the right pocket to the left pocket. At the end of the day, see how many dimes you moved. Mm -hmm. And your goal is to try to move 10 dimes. And if you don't, let's at least move five of them. Yeah. A lot of leaders go into their office and focus on their to-dos and don't look at what people are doing. And if people do good stuff, they say nothing. And this is true of parents as well. Yeah. It's true of spouses as well. How much better would relationships be if we thanked each other all the time for the things we do for each other? Certainly. So um, Seven times better, I would hope. Really. And if seven we, compliments. And if we, we resisted the need to criticize, because you know what? Nobody gets enough affirmation. We all get criticized by our parents growing up and criticized by teachers in school and criticized by relationships, criticized by bosses. We're all fragile. And there's nothing like having somebody say, hey, thanks so much for such a great job, or thanks for staying late. Or well, it thanks also for... blunts the criticism when, when it has to be given. When somebody is telling you good more. stuff and they finally tell you something bad, you know at least they care about you, they appreciate you, they acknowledge you, and they're, they're giving you tough feedback because they want you to be better, not because they want you to feel bad. So I tell leaders that your job is to let people go home feeling good about themselves every day. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing is true for spouses. Mm -hmm. Your job as a spouse is make your spouse feel good. Yeah. Make your children feel good. That doesn't mean no discipline, but save their self-esteem and do whatever you can to build their self-esteem because it's fragile. And last but not least is compensation. A compensation may not sound like it plays a role in relationship, but it does. Because I've often had my wife say, hey, you don't pay me to do the wash. <laughs> <laughs> You don't, you don't pay me to grocery shops. I don't complain if oh, I contribute a little bit less. And people keep mental accounting. They keep mental accounting, right. Yeah. 
may so, not be dollars, but it's so something. It is. I mean, the fact is that we exchange services. In the business context, people are often asked to do things they're not being paid to do. Somehow the minute a store person who's a retail clerk gets promoted to manager, the assumption is that manager is now my slave. They can stay 60 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week, and they don't get paid overtime because mm -hmm. they're a manager. And the same thing's in business. In business, oftentimes I work with senior execs who are making a lot of money and have no life. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of making all that money if they can't enjoy their life? Depends on what their values are. Depends what their values are. So the compensation issue is critical in business, and I often take a hard look at compensation systems and what behaviors are we rewarding. Are we rewarding individual performance or team performance? Yeah. Do we care how the whole company does or just how one person does? Yeah. Because I've seen people do things that are in their best interest at the expense of the company. Yeah. So in the relationship thing, I would say a conversation about money is important and about whose money is it that we're spending and how, what's our budget and what do we agree on putting on that budget and you know, what, what role do, do we each have in contributing to the creation of this budget and the agreements around it? Those are all important conversations. What did I call this? The right conversation. To yeah, have so my people, book will right? be coming out on April 9th on Amazon. It's called Inspire Accountability. And I hope people will read it. I hope that you can apply some of these principles to your personal life because ultimately, when I work with people, I'm working on both their life at work and their life at home. And their life at home is ultimately more important. I often used to say of my wife, who, who was a life coach until she retired, that I do the easy stuff. I help people be more successful at work, and she does the really tough stuff. She helps people be more successful in their life. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I hope that all the listeners here have more successful lives. And more successful marriages. And more successful marriages. Ken, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much Thank for you so much. coming to my podcast. It's my pleasure. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. -L, or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.